Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so we'd like to welcome to the uh, podcast this afternoon, Brad Culp, who I know a lot of people uh, follow on Twitter, uh, Chicago-based. Uh, hi, Brad, I hope you're well. Um, yep. it's the, uh, what time of day is it where you are there? Uh, it's a little past nine in the morning, uh, actually a little past 10. Um, so yeah, just uh, just getting the Friday started. And um, yeah, it's luckily the sun's out. It's um, probably about close to zero degrees Celsius, so not exactly warm. Yeah, but, <laughs> that was my next question because whenever we start a podcast because uh, myself and Ian and Mike are in different parts of the UK we always have to have a weather check to see who's in the best spot yeah. but I think it sounds like your uh, your weather forecast is pretty much like ours it's uh, pretty cold and clear here so um, yeah I, I just envisage because you're in the US you see it will be sunny and warm yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah unfortunately uh, it won't be warm again for us until uh, probably April maybe May um, but uh, I certainly don't mind the winter here as long as it's not too cold yeah, as long as it's not raining, that's uh, that's yeah. my approach as well. Um, do you just want to tell the uh, the listeners a little bit about your background before we start, and and you know uh, what is it you do and how you got into it? Sure, um, I uh, I started as a an intern for a triathlete magazine um, back in it's probably two thousand four two thousand five, um, and then started working for them after I graduated from university. Um, worked there for uh, probably five or six years, um, then went to work for the ITU for a year. Uh, in Vancouver uh, as part of their media team. Uh, back to California, we started a little triathlon magazine called Lava that had a, a nice probably six-year run there. Um, unfortunately folded, uh, it's, as I'm sure you're well aware, it's not the best of times for print magazines. Uh, I don't know that starting one in 2010 was the best idea. Um, yeah, we had fun with it. Uh, it now I'm back writing for uh, uh, for triathlete, I uh, also do some stuff for Ironman.com um, and a couple of other brands uh, um, in the, the triathlon industry, kind of helping with their communications work. Um, so, yeah, just fully immersed in, in triathlon. Um, I uh, keep saying I'm going to eventually get a real job and get out of this uh, little triathlon bubble, but it keeps on pulling me back uh, for whatever reason. So, But it, it's not a bad place to be. Yeah. And do you come from a pure uh, like journalism background? Do you, do you compete in sports yourself, uh, leisure or competitively? Or Yeah, yeah. That's how I kind of got uh, got started. I was uh, I started doing I was a swimmer in, in high school and college. Um, and uh, the last couple of years I was in college, uh, started doing triathlons, just kind of fun with a couple of teammates. Um, junior year, a couple of us decided, hey, let's go do an Ironman just kind of on a whim. Um, and, you know, we had, we were swimming four or five hours a day. So really, you know, just jumping into an Ironman was something you could do back then. We had the, you know, we had the fitness for it, even though we couldn't really run. Um, and from there, kind of just got swept up in the whole Ironman thing, spent years and years trying to qualify for Kona and, and you know, killing myself to do that. Um, 
after eight Ironman, I, I called it quits of doing the full distance stuff. Um, so nowadays I just do a, a lot of Xterra, um, a lot of off-road stuff, um, occasional half Ironman, 70.3 is as long as I'll go these days. Uh, I don't know if a ninth Ironman is in the books for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly great to have you on the show. Um, now, I know Ian's got a lot of questions and he's going to be uh, leading this today. So I'm going to hand over to Ian. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Um, yeah, I think uh, one of the reasons that we were really keen to uh, to interview you and have you on the podcast was because a number of the things that you tend to cover on, uh, particularly on social media, seem relevant to things that we've talked about in bits and pieces on the podcast at different weeks, um, but all seem to sort of focus around and centre on uh, the business of sport. Uh, and maybe you know how the commercialization of sport and the desire for profit can sometimes lead to some unethical behaviors so um yeah uh, obviously i'm thinking about things such as you know, anti-doping potentially um sponsorships that maybe are questionable those sort of um areas that we're really interested in but um also maybe in terms of maybe some of the solutions and uh, and how we'll address those so it'd be good to to cover some of those topics um i i think probably anti-doping is a good place to start because that seems to be something that you've been uh, quite vocal on um i wonder what your thoughts are in terms of anti-doping at the moment or doping in sort of endurance sport and whether you think things are actually improving or have improved over the last few years um cycling triathlon in particular i'm thinking yeah i uh I, I suppose you could say it's improved in the sense that um, it's not uh, it's not as pervasive in, in just be, um, I don't know it became such like a like a corporate thing. We, I'm talking like back in like the Festina days and the early days of, of um, Postal, um, where it was this you know huge huge business basically that um, that was being run. Um, and now I feel like. I don't know that it's any less pervasive. It's just kind of changed in terms of the, the system um, that we see, um, you know, in, uh, in triathlon, at least it's, it's uh, obviously to think that the sport is, people always say it's much cleaner than cycling, which is something I, I would tend to believe um, just because historically there hasn't been this culture of doping. There also isn't nearly the same amount of money in triathlon as there is um, in cycling. Um, but something, uh, you know, Ian, you and I talked about previously was that, that money is only a really, really small motivator for, for cheating. Um, and uh, so to say that there's not enough money in triathlon to encourage cheating is, is I think, naive. Um, but at least in triathlon, the, the onus is kind of on the individual athlete. If they wanted to cheat, it would have to be something that, that they are, you know, going out and doing um, mostly by themselves or with a doctor, with a coach. Um, Whereas, you know, what we saw in cycling, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was, um, you know, this team run enterprise that the athletes, uh, they basically just show up and, and present their arm and, and get a needle. Um, they didn't have to ask a lot of questions. They didn't have to, you know, go out and find the doctors and find the drugs. Um, so, yeah, I guess in that sense, you know, maybe it's, it's better that it doesn't seem as systemic. Um Although to to say that there isn't systemic doping going on um, is you know ridiculous as you know we've seen the the uh, Freeman uh, Tribunal in, in Manchester last week um, you know that reeks of a very systemic issue 
um, that uh, you know I'm sure is something that was widely covered in in the press over in the UK. Um, and I, I think that uh, I mean, it just takes a while for these things to kind of unravel when, when you do have these these you know specific cultures, whether it's um, you know with British cycling or whether it's with the Oregon project and uh, um, you know that Nike was running. Um, when you have those little pockets, it, it takes, it just takes a while to unravel. It takes a whistleblower. It takes, um, it, you know, it takes people talking. And, um, and I think it's inevitable that when you have those, those cultures of, of cheating, um, that eventually, the, you know, the truth is going to come out because the web gets so entangled. There are so many people involved. There's so many people who know, um, it's just a matter of time before, you know, the truth gets out. Um, the fact that Lance and Postal and Discovery went, you know, 15 years of, of cheating be, between, you know, when Lance won his first tour and when, you know, the the Oprah special, it's 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 unbelievable. Um, and I think money was the driving force there. Is that there was so much money involved, there were so many people with um, that were getting paid, you know, from this this you know system of cheating um, that it was easy to cover up and. Um, yeah, they got away with it for 15 years. The Oregon Project got away with everything they were doing for, you know, uh, almost a dozen years. Um, it's uh, that to me is the most amazing part is that these these cultures of cheating are able to to survive as long as they are. And, and I think money is the, the big thing behind it. Yeah, uh, interesting that you mentioned uh, a number of instances that I, I was going to bring up. So like the Lance Armstrong case, the Freeman uh, case. And, and I think one thing that, uh, and also how these uh, situations don't come to light for a lot of years. And I, I think part of um, what might explain that, do, do you think in some ways that there's a, uh, a controlling of the media? Um, I don't think this is necessarily something that you um fall foul of but i think a lot of journalists potentially are um are controlled by people like lance armstrong so that they don't ask certain questions and i think that was probably the case with the freeman case and mm-hmm. uh and british cycling and sky a number of years ago what, what are your thoughts on that and uh, yeah it's um, it's easy for the athletes and the teams to uh or the race organizers to control access and you know if you anyone who spoke ill of lance you know in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s when um, I remember I was, you know, I was just starting my journalism career in 2003, 2004. I'd moved to California and, and it, back then Lance was my hero. He's why I started riding a bike. Um, and you know, I really believed in everything. I didn't know anything about pro cycling, um, moved to California, started, um, riding with a bunch of former pro cyclists and guys who had, you know, been, a, been on the world tour and kind of knew, um, how the sausage was being made, if you will. Um, and they just immediately opened my eyes because, you know, I one day said something about how, you know, about how I thought Lance was clean. And I just got laughed at by a group of like 15 guys. And they were like, come here, kid, you know, sit down and we're going to tell you some stories. And um, and but back then, anyone who who spoke ill of, of Lance, you know, was blacklisted and didn't have the access to someone who really controlled the entire sport. And, you know, trying to have a media enterprise in, say, 2005 without having access to Lance Armstrong, if, if you know, you're just covering cycling, um, you, you couldn't exist. And I think there's definitely a, a fanboy element um, with a lot of journalists who cover cycling, who cover triathlon. Um, and not that that's, that's totally wrong. It's great to be, you know, fans of these athletes and, and to support them. Um, but I think that can kind of end up putting blinders on um, and you know, force people not to see the 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 greater picture. I, I think that 
you know, when what was going on with with Wiggins and and Sky and and you know then Froome, I think it's you know me looking at it objectively, I'm like, there's you know there's there's something there. There has to be something going on. It's ridiculous to think that someone could be a you know a team could be as dominant as as Sky and Eos has been um, without having some some pretty dark secrets. Um, but at the same time, it's one if you're a journalist, you can't just come out and say. You know, I think they're doping because this is impossible because one, you open yourself up to lawsuits. I, I know I've been threatened with lawsuits before for tweets, um, which is pretty funny for me. Um, but so one, there's the, the legal ramification you got to be worried about. And two, it's the access. And it's very easy to control. Um, you know, I, I know Ironman is never happy when I'm talking about doping and, and triathlon um, because of the, you know, presents a bad image. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not they're not gonna you know ban my access from from events or talking to athletes, um, but they've certainly let it be known on occasion that uh, they'd be happier if I weren't talking about these kinds of things. Um, but not talking about it doesn't you know doesn't uh, advance anti-doping at all, as you've seen, especially with Oregon Project, with Mary Kane, with you know with Kara and, and Steve, you know being the whistleblowers. The the only way that that these situations. Is, improve is, is people being open and, and talking about it and not kind of just you know throwing it under the rug and trying to hide everything yeah no absolutely I, I think one of the best examples of that is probably um david walsh um the, you probably know of david walsh who wrote the uh, seven deadly sins book about uh, lance armstrong and he was ostracized by armstrong and there was uh, withheld access but then he was then embedded within the Sky team and very supportive of their sort of clean image. Um, and then he wrote an article recently in the UK press and uh, said he was, he was embarrassed by um, sort of his approach to journalism when he was writing those pieces about Team Sky. Um, so it's kind of, I think sometimes you can be blind to it yourself as well when you... Um, and uh, and Sky did such a good job with creating this narrative that that they were different, that they were somehow you know the the whole the marginal gains BS. Um, I, I've never seen. I mean, that was even better than what the the narrative that Postal was selling. Um, that you know Lance was just this magic man who you know overcame cancer, could overcome anything, and it was just the sheer will of this man, and that's what made him great. Um, Sky spun this uh, amazing story about how. These, you know, really, really small attention to detail uh, makes a difference. And as if every cycling team in the world isn't paying attention to every minute detail. Um, and it was amazing seeing so many, especially in the the British press, um, just get enamored with this story. And I, I was wondering when Walsh was going to, you know, speak up and write something. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'm glad he did, but it... Uh, um, yeah, it was just it was amazing for me to see the way that he covered Sky after knowing after seeing what he had seen for 15 years um, with Postal and Discovery. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I guess it's easy to get those blinders on, and when you have access to you know arguably one of the most famous athletes in Britain in in Froome, um, yeah, it's that's something that's hard to to you know turn away, and and um, you know one one article from him could have blacklisted him and, and, you know, could have hurt his career. So I get it in that sense, but, uh, but you can't have it both ways. Um, I'm glad to see that he finally addressed it. I was very curious as to when he was going to speak up. 
No, he, he came under fire for a long time and sort of resisted that as well. So I guess um, in the end, he just the, the evidence was just so overwhelming that he kind of had to. I think. I just, um, yeah, yeah, something you mentioned earlier about this, uh, you know, the whole story of the um, marginal gains and um, Lance Armstrong and the cancer story. And I mean, he would never take drugs because he'd had so many drugs already in his body. And we actually discussed this uh, a couple of months ago, myself and Ian, we were talking about how these cover stories always exist. So yeah. at the same time as Lance Armstrong, you had Jan Ulrich, who had a holistic therapist who would follow him around everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which creates this, again, this image of like, you know, the, uh, yeah, holistic health and well-being. And then you had, um, you know, Tyler Hamilton was the hard man. And so what was the guy who was the, uh, it was Amish? Who, um, oh, Floyd Landis. Uh, yeah, yeah, Floyd Landis. He had to get up at three o'clock in the morning to ride his bike because his father wouldn't let him ride his bike. And everybody's got a cover story. Everybody's got a backstory, a reason why this religious background and get up at three o'clock in the morning to ride his bike after he'd done his chores. This isn't a man who would take drugs. And it's fascinating. And we were just uh, talking today. Something popped up on Facebook that Chris, uh, Chris Froome has gone vegan. And as soon as I saw Chris Froome's gone vegan, I thought, oh, here we go again. Here's another story. That's why he's stronger than everyone else this year <laughs> and that's, that's going to become you know how he recovered from this surgery so yeah. quickly is this new vegan diet and i can't yeah. wait to see that that narrative next summer combined with a list of new vegan products from sis yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry no, it's, um, no, no it's, it's a good point because i think that there is a real purpose to a lot of these cover stories it's because the, the, it's targeting that fan base that just want to believe so if you give people something to hang on to, then um, even if it's quite ridiculous, people will believe it. Um, or the people that you're interested in wanting to believe it will. Um, I think we see it with inadvertent doping as well and some of the claims that you get from athletes who have tested positive and then come up with some ridiculous uh, example of how they've inadvertently doped. But the people that they're interested in, friends, family, um, and their fan base, want to believe that so they, they, they believe the story even though yeah there's a large body of people out there that are probably quite cynical about um such cover stories yeah, um, yeah. so yeah i won't yeah. be going vegan uh, overnight just because uh, chris frew has <laughs> <laughs> i think um, i'm gonna yeah, say go the, on, the other thing as well is maybe the popularity of people i find it quite interesting how some people come out of it very tainted and others don't Mm-hmm. He gave Wiggins as an example. He's actually quite local to where we are. He was just, you know, not far, just down the road. But um, I think he's come out of it quite, quite well locally, and he's, you know, he still has a lot of support. And it's interesting how, you know, I think there's a, if, if fans like people or don't like people, how bad they come out of this. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And I think there's like a. People like a redemption story, even if someone has cheated. Um, and when people are contrite and honest, um, I think that goes a long way. It's it's the doubling down and and like and especially with Lance, it was more than doubling down. It was it was suing everyone who came at him. It was I mean it was ruining lives. And the fact that he was so malicious has made him such a malign figure in America. Whereas I mean he's probably if his name comes up, there are still people who support him. There's still people who say, well, everyone was cheating, so he's still the champion and. And that's fine. But like, I mean, he is he is hated, whereas um, we have Alex Rodriguez, who is one of the greatest American baseball players um, for the New York Yankees, who, um, you know, it was involved in the whole uh, Balco scandal. Um, And for whatever reason, um, 
he's never really apologized and done like a special admitting to everything. He's just kind of, you know, he's, he's admitted to it. He's moved on. Um, and now he's a broadcaster on, on our biggest sports network and he's all over the media and, um, you know, no one seems to have a problem with him at all. And, and he's, you know, made the second career. Um, so it is very interesting how certain people, um, come out of it so much better. And I think that it's the ones who don't double down and who don't, write books, you know, talking about, uh, the fact that they were clean as, as Floyd did, um, you know, or Lance wrote, I, I think three books, you know, about his, uh, um, you know, not being about the bike. Um, so I think that the people are willing to forgive, but only to an extent, once you, uh, once you kick the can down the road, as far as the Lance or Floyd did, you know, it's, it's impossible to get back on, on people's good graces. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I think that probably the uh, the image of uh, different athletes in the media and the way they're portrayed in the media is probably uh, quite important as well. I, I think in here in terms of Justin Gatlin and how he was portrayed in the UK media and, mm. and quite different to if you um, see the way other athletes have been. Like Dwayne Chambers was uh, was covered quite positively in the end in the British media when he, when he came back, um, whereas Justin Gatlin was um, heavily criticised. It was always that negative... Um, focus on him. So I think how the media portray an athlete probably influences um, mm -hmm. how, whether people accept that as well. But yeah, I think there is a point if people go beyond, and certainly Lance Armstrong went beyond that because it went beyond doping. It was sort of the pressure to dope, but also how he responded to anyone that challenged him, as you say. Um, you go beyond a certain point, and there's too much to forgive, I think, for a lot of people. I just think with, with, uh, I always remember back with um, Bradley Wiggins. I think the worst thing is a PR thing that Chris Froome ever did was attack him in the Tour de France when he was working as a domestique. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people like Wiggins because he's he's that is one of the lads, really. I would say, you know, and that just is down to earth. And well, that's how he comes across, whether he is or not. I don't know, but that's how he comes across. Uh, and I, I think that what you know after that, when when Froome attacked him, and you know, and I see that now when when people are making claims about, you know, people taking drugs with the difference between Froome is treated very different to, to Wiggins. And I think that was one of the worst things he ever did is a this time was attack, attack Wiggins and Wiggins was the idol at the time. And there's a lot of people hated Froome after that. Mm -hmm. No, no, I, I agree. I think that um, endeared him towards a lot of the British public at Wake because Bradley Wiggins really was the sort of golden boy at the time, wasn't he, with the 2012 Olympics and everything. Um but again, I think it's the, a lot of the evidence around uh, or suggestions about Brad Wiggins are circumstantial. And whilst it's circumstantial, people who don't want, uh, who want to still have a positive view will maintain that, um, regardless of how much um, circumstantial evidence there is um, around the teams. Mm -hmm. um, so moving on a bit from anti-doping, I, I just wanted to ask you, Brad, about um, sponsorship. Um, and how sort of the business of sport might influence people to make decisions that maybe would be viewed as being unethical. I know you've been quite vocal about um, Baron Merida um, cycling team. I wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit about that. And, um... Yeah, I think um, it, it started with the, the Bahrain 13 triathlon team, and my biggest issue with it, um, it's not so much that Bahrain was coming in and sponsoring triathlon, um, Obviously, Bahrain's got some pretty serious issues when it comes to human rights that have been well documented. Um, but, you know, I can't sit here as an American and pretend like my country doesn't or, or that, I mean, that, um, it, you know, that the U.S. 
you know, could be allowed to sponsor a triathlon team or cycling team. Or, um, I don't necessarily have a problem with them doing that. It, it was the name that they came out with, the Bahrain 13, which um, if you Google Bahrain 13, the first thing that comes up would be a Wikipedia page about the actual Bahrain 13, who were 13 political prisoners um, who were arrested after the Arab Spring and, and tortured and not treated very well. Um, so then to name the team Bahrain 13, is a, it, it was such an affront to this horrific human rights crime. Um, it, that's where it all started. If they just became the Bahrain triathlon team, I, I don't know that I would have taken such issue with it. Um, I would have, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of the athletes on the team and, and expressed my concern. Um, a, a couple of them I'm, I'm closer with and, and, you know, I just, I've reached out to them as a friend and say, hey, this might not be the best image. Just like Ben Canute is, you know, trying to qualify for the uh, U.S. triathlon, the Olympic team next year. Um, and, and I don't think racing with a, a Bahrain uh, flag and a Bahrain name on your chest is a very good image for this guy who's trying to be kind of, you know, Mr. America. Um, so the, when that, when they associated the number with the team, that's when I really took issue with it. Um, and it kind of worked behind the scenes on a couple of pieces that were published uh, specifically about that number, you know, whitewashing this pretty awful, um, human rights abuse. Um, and then that kind of rolled forward into earlier this year when Milan Erzon, who was the, uh, the managing director of the Bahrain Merida team, um, also the personal coach of, of uh, Prince Nasser, um, the younger Prince of Bahrain, who, of course, raced in Kona last year. Um, and he had been uh, accused of, uh, of buying a centrifuge uh, in Slovenia. Um, and there's really only one reason that you'd buy a centrifuge. Um, well, it could also... Uh, I was expecting them to claim it had something to do with the horse racing that uh, is also very popular in Bahrain and the prince is very uh, involved with. Um, and I know uh, I, I've heard that that Erzan was coaching both uh, um, the prince, the the cycling team, and also helping with the horse racing side. Um, so I, I, I uh, um, stumbled upon some articles in the Slovenian press uh, linking Erzan to being the personal coach of of. Uh, 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 Nasser and, and David Plesha, who's another one of the Bahrain 13 athletes, um, that they uh, they weren't too happy about me putting two and two together. Um, but uh, it, just in terms of the 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 money coming into the sport, I, I guess it's good, and it's hard to say like you know who can and can't sponsor a team. Uh, obviously, uh, UAE also sponsors a, um, a pro cycling team, um, and they've got their own uh, laundry list of, of human rights issues. Um, so I, I don't necessarily have a problem with sponsorship coming from questionable, questionable places. It's just when that sponsorship is being used to do something like whitewash a crime um, or, or put athletes in harm's way. Like when, uh, you know, FIFA, uh, uh, IAAF is awarding the, the track world champs to, uh, to Doha um, and asking people to run a, a marathon in Doha in the summer, um, that, that's ultimately harming the athletes. Um, so it's when money's good and it's, it's, you know, I'm not saying that there should be no money from, you know, Middle Eastern countries coming into uh, endurance sports uh, or that, you know, major games shouldn't be played there. But it has to be done in a way that doesn't um, doesn't one just immediately, you know, uh, is a, a slap in the face to the actual, you know, Bahrain 13 victims and their families or number two puts athletes in harm's way, as we saw this summer. Yeah, uh, good points. Um, I noticed you mentioned Kona there and the Prince competing in Kona. There was something else about Kona and certain athletes competing there that I've 
I wanted to get your thoughts on. And that was um, one or two of the ex-pro cyclists who have tested positive in cycling um, and who we've discussed previously on the on the podcast, but has also got some coverage on social media in terms of them going and winning age group um, competitions. What, what are your thoughts on that and uh, whether there's anything that should be done or could be done? Yeah, it's that's tricky because um, it'd be easy to say, as a lot of people did on social media, that, oh, you know, how could Ironman allow these athletes to compete? Um, they, they essentially didn't have a choice. Um, yeah. they, they're a signee of the WADA code. Um, and so those those athletes have, have you know, served their ban and, and they're they're allowed to compete. And if Ironman banned them, they would be breaking the code and that would you know, open up a whole different can of worms. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily saying that Ironman, you know, how could they, you let this happen? Um, but uh, at the same time, one, I, I don't, the fact that these athletes like Vita Kurov or Jalabert or, or Bridget McMahon, who was the, uh, the first uh, Olympic triathlon gold medalist, um, is now competing in triathlon as an amateur again. Um, the fact that they want to compete against amateurs after spending decades, you, you know, changing their physiology and doping, um, it, it's it, to me, it just seems insane that that uh, I, I mean, and you're the you're the psychologist, but to me that that reeks of like sociopathic behavior of like why would you why does Alexander Vinokurov want to become an age group triathlon world champion? Why is that important to him? You know, um, if he wants to continue to ride a bike or run or you know sign up for a local triathlon and, and compete, that's great. Um, I, I wouldn't have a problem with Lance Armstrong doing that if he wants to go do a triathlon in Austin. Um, but to want to do it at the highest age group level and go to a world championship, which is a huge deal for the people he's competing against. Um, Vino's in one of the most competitive age groups. I mean, there are, I'm sure there's a lot of other people in that age group doping, but there's a lot of people who put in, you know, professional hours of training and this really means something to them. And it's a lifelong dream of competing in Kona. Um, the fact that Vino Korov wants to go and, and, you know, this is all, all of a sudden his dream uh, to me is just, is absolutely insane. Um, and then it's even more insane is the way that it was embraced by Ironman CEO Andrew Messick, who, um, you know, was there hugging him at the finish line. Um, it's one thing to he couldn't have stopped him from competing, like I said, but he didn't have to be there hugging him, congratulating him. Um, and again, I, I think that all goes into uh, sponsorship dollars because I know they have a race in Kazakhstan now coming up. And I'm sure there's a financial relationship between those two. Um, so it just goes to show that, that you know, even at the someone who you really want to care about, about clean sport, you know, the, the arguably the most powerful person in the sport um, is not sending that message because there's a, a financial opportunity for him. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I don't nah. We're going to see cyclists not stop competing in triathlon, but um, I, I wish it weren't embraced the way that it's been. That, yeah, I think that that's, that's the key message that I was uh, keen to get across was um, that, there isn't anything that can be done by the Ironman to actually prevent those athletes competing. But at the same time, you don't necessarily have to embrace it on the level that, uh, that we saw. Um, and I think in terms of what we're just going back to the previous discussion on um, the bar in 13, obviously there's a lot of money coming into the sport, but athletes can take a personal stance against that, can't they? And you see, you've spoken to one or two of the athletes what um what sort of response did you get from them um it, the 
The problem I have, it's been the same response for years, um, whether I, I've spoken to them directly off the record or whether it's, um, you know, just kind of been a back and forth tweets with some of the athletes. Um, they're uh, obviously they've been told by by their PR team that the, the image they want to send is, yes, there are, you know, there have been some accusations against Bahrain, but triathlon is a good thing and we're bringing triathlon to a region that is that that is for a large part very unhealthy there there are a lot of health problems in the middle east um uh there hasn't been a culture you know endurance sports hasn't really existed um you know the idea of a woman going out for a run in abu dhabi 15 years ago would have been insane and, and she could have been arrested for that and now you know you you go to abu dhabi and you see people all, all sorts of people out running and, and enjoying a healthier lifestyle and and that's great and i'm, I'm not saying that you know the, the the prince's interest in triathlon and endurance sport can you know possibly encourage that among some other people but to say that that's why the team was started and that's why this number is associated with it um i don't know it's just that the athletes always have these blinders on it yes there's bad stuff that went on in bahrain but this is something good and i'm part of something good um and I would have a much easier time buying that and accepting that if, if there weren't this number. And it's not. Like, I mean, now if they remove the number, it it wouldn't change anything. I, I I believe the team was was created to to you know whitewash something really bad, and, and regardless of where it goes from there, that that was the genesis of the team, and that's why I always have a problem with it. Um, and I think it's great to see certain athletes who did take a principled stance and either you know said no when they were offered a chance, uh, a spot on the team, or um, uh, most notably Sebastian Keenley did join the team uh, for about a six-month period. And then, um, you know, maybe because he heard from people close to him, maybe he just, you know, had some more time to to read about it and to, to kind of wrestle with his conscience. But he then left the team and, and you know, said in the, the German press that it was because he had, he took moral issue with it. Um, so I have to imagine it's something that's weighing on every member of the team. Um, and uh, I'd love to know how much money some of them are getting paid because I imagine it's pretty substantial by triathlon standards. Um, and uh, I, I can't say I, I can't say I, I blame them. Um, like I said, I, I know a couple of them personally, and, and um, a, who are around my same age, maybe a little younger, and just getting married, just you know, looking to start a family, buy a house. Um, it, they have such a finite window in the sport to to make a real living and, and to accomplish those those life goals. Um, I can't say that if I was, you know, presented with, you know, the kind of check that they were presented with by, uh, by Bahrain that, that I would have said no, cause I haven't been in that position. Um, but, uh, um, certainly in other cases, if it's a Javier Gomez or Jan Ferdino, um, I don't think they're going to have a problem financially. Um, but, uh, um, I'm sure they're, they're getting a, a nice little paycheck from the Prince. So, um, like you said, money can kind of kind of change the way we look at uh, our own ethics. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that you, when you're saying some of the justification has been around um, potentially growing sport or um, promoting physical activity in areas that have issues with health, because I think that was something uh, similar to what was said by Seb Coe when they were talking about um, the uh, IWF taking the games to Qatar. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of grow, grow, growing, sorry, growing the sport in in regions where athletics isn't currently popular, I mean, do do you really buy those uh, arguments, or do you think they're just sort of covers for the the, the real reasons why? Um, that, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly it's to me it just 
reeks of a cover. I I think that uh, if you watch the uh, the track world champs, I mean, there were literally there were like a hundred people in the stands for the hundred meter dash, which is, you know, if, if you put that in the UK and the US, that would have been a sellout event. It, it would have been, it you know, something everyone wanted to see. Um, there was just such a lack of interest in pretty much every event. I mean, it, I think the the marathon probably caught more attention because there are a lot more uh, Middle Eastern runners competing in in you know the distance events. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is really just a, a, a farce to, to say that we want to, we want to grow track and field. And, and I know that a lot of these, these countries like Qatar, like, uh, like the UAE, like Bahrain, um, you know, they want to, um, they want to become these sort of hubs of, of culture and, and sport is a huge part of that. Um, and they, uh, they obviously have the funds to, to make that possible. Um, but yeah, this to say that this year's track world champs, you know, uh, I don't know how much it's going to actually have affected the the growth of track and field in in the region. Um, I mean, they, they they couldn't sell tickets, they couldn't give away tickets, so uh, you know the interest just isn't there. And uh, yeah, it's just an easy cover to say that. You know, it was what was fascinating actually about the uh, so the crowds. There was a lot of obviously complaints, and BBC were covering it and saying there was no one there spectating. So that would filter back to the organisers. A couple of days later, suddenly there was not, it wasn't full, but there were more people in. And the cameras would pan around and say, you can see there are more people in today. And what you had is blocks of people, so maybe 60 people. And they were all dressed, so for example, in an identical uniform. And there'd be a block of 60 sitting together. And it's as if they'd gone to a school or a college or a workplace and said, all right, you lot, you're all coming spectating today. And just bust in these groups of people to create this crowd you know, and a lot of them just looked really disinterested. But it was yeah. so obvious the way the crowd just looked all so uniform and in certain blocks and all dressed the same, you know, that they, it was just this kind of like renter crowd. That they- <laughs> just just yeah. behind the BBC's uh, uh, interview stand as well, I think, just behind yeah. their cameras at one point. Which- yeah, it reminds me in, uh, when I was in college, I went to a school that didn't have a great uh, football team. Um, you know, we were okay. And then kids just didn't really care and didn't really go to games. But when we did go, they would encourage us all to sit on like the, it'd be broadcast on TV and you could only see maybe the first 20 to 30 rows of a 60 row stadium. And they would encourage everyone to get down, no one to sit up top, like pack in those. So that on TV, it looked like, oh my God, they sold out a, you know, sold out the crowd and really it's, you know, 20% full. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely noticed that as well, that the uh, the placing of the crowds was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Can I just, I just I kind of want to ask you both a question as well, because you were talking earlier about the drivers for professional sports people uh, doping. And uh, very briefly mentioned the amateurs, and this is a conversation that we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, really, from, from your perspective, and as a psychologist and from your own perspective, as well as a, as a journalist and your views on it, that you know the, the different drivers between professional athletes, whether it's financial, and uh, and with age group athletes as well, because obviously that I, you know, Ian says I'm very naive on this topic about how, you know, how endemic this is with uh, with age group athletes. But what the different drivers are, and that you know the differences now we're seeing, because with a lot of age groupers, you know, there's a, I mean, the top age groupers probably receive well, they can receive more press coverage and attention and more sponsors than some of the second and third tier pros. You know, so just curious what your thoughts are really about on, the, on you know, where it is, where doping is with age group and pro and, and the different drivers. Um, Ian? Um, I, I think a lot of the drivers are not necessarily 
different. I think that people often talk about money in professional sport and they talk about um, how that can lead people to engage in unethical behaviours and such as doping. And, and I think that is the case and it can promote it. But I think often there is also a drive on an individual basis in terms of an individual athlete and them just being willing to do anything to, to sort of get the notoriety, notoriety, get the response from social media, from their peers in terms of the performance level that they think that they need to, or the rewards and the responses they think they'll get if they meet that level of performance. And I think for, for those drivers, an amateur athlete can be just as susceptible as a, as a professional athlete. Um, so I think there are some additional ones for professional athletes, but I think many uh, amateur athletes are still susceptible to, to, to a number of the drivers for doping. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what what you think on that part. I mean, so. yeah, I think that uh, you know the first conversation you and I had um, when I was working on that feature for triathlete um, kind of opened my eyes a lot, and you led me to a lot of good research on the fact that it, at the end of the day, it's it's very ego driven, and and the the even the best professionals they didn't get into the sport thinking, oh, I'm going to be rich. Like you know, Jan Ferdino didn't decide I want to become the best triathlete in the world because it's going to make me a ton of money. Like he. You know, he was very driven. That was a sport that he chose. And uh, it was always about becoming the best in the world. And that's the same for you know, an age grouper who's going to Kona and, and, you know, hoping to win their age group in a world championship. It's it's all about ego, all about being the best. And um, I think because the, the financial incentives taken away, that's almost why people are more perturbed by amateur doping than professional. It's, it's almost like they can make a justification like, Okay, if uh, you know professional cyclists, you know it, it comes out that they were doping. They're like, okay, that was their income. That that's how they were supporting their family. They cheated for financial reason. Even if that's that wasn't the main driving force, like people can can make that justification. Then you hear about a, you know, an age grouper doping in Kona, and you're just like, what the hell is wrong with this person? Like, what they're you're not making any money. You're just taking away, you know, other people's jo- enjoyment of the sport. Um, it. it uh, I think that's why people are just so put off by amateur cheating and, and so invested in it right now, which is great. You see people care a lot more about it. You're seeing a lot more funds from whether it's Ironman or ITU or um, you know, USA Cycling. They're spending a lot more money testing age groupers, educating age groupers, um, because that's what their that's what their clientele wants, and, and that's um, and obviously it, it's it's very rampant. Um, and I think we've only scratched the surface about how rampant it is and and how we can. You know, obviously not get to a point where we have clean sport. I think, and you've mentioned this before, that the whole idea of purely clean sport is is naive. Um, but we have such a long way that we can go, especially on the amateur level. Yeah. Now, I think whenever I hear the term sort of drug-free sport and we're, we're aiming for, you know, 100% clean sport, it always sort of makes me think about, um, you know, uh, goal setting 101 in terms of you know you set realistic goals don't you <laughs> and mm. that's just not a realistic goal it's not uh, but we can certainly move things a long way from where they are currently uh, um it seems uh, for some people it's more what's more important is the perception rather than the reality which mm. um i'd much rather try and change what the reality is and i think the reality is probably um not too good in terms of prevalence both in amateur and professional i, th- I think probably what's changed so much in terms of 
um, amateur, it's maybe the environment and the access availability. So online access to doping substances and and probably the increased coverage in the media gives the perception that this is something that's um, more widespread and that can actually promote the behaviour in and of itself. But I think the access as well. So you know, professional athletes um, 10, 20 years ago could get access to doping substances, but it probably wouldn't have been quite so easy for an amateur athlete then. Um, but they can probably walk into any gym, certainly in the UK, probably the same in the US, um, and, and access doping substances now. Um, yeah. uh, but but you can also get them online as well. So I think the access is and awareness um, is probably much greater now. So it's probably that that's changed rather than you know that, that potential in terms of those drivers for ego and uh, enhancement of performance, at, regardless of what the cost might be. Um, yeah have always been there but maybe the access wasn't and then it makes it easier to think like oh if it's this easy for me to get testosterone you know in the mail you know it's easy for someone else you know they've got to be doing it it just the justification has become so much easier because the access is is right there yeah yeah it is interesting I mean, even like i'm on uk now there's, there's there's no pros that i'm on uk it's just an age group race but, but, you know, I've seen over the last last 10 years, I'm not particularly good on social media. I'm a little bit old for social media. But uh, the, uh, I've seen over the last 10 years that just that shift away from professional athletes and sponsorship and more towards influencers and um, ambassadors and things like that, you know, and it's more age group athletes who have a big social media following. And I guess there is, you know, quite a strong driver there. I mean, maybe social media's had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. For, uh, doping in age group ranks because whilst you may look at it and say look it's not your career it's not your um you're not making any money out of this so why would you dope but actually there is a lot to be gained for those amateurs and you know seemingly increasingly so as i say with a lot of the sponsors choosing those people rather than professional athletes you know and i think it's it's not necessarily that they're increasing money earning potential they maybe get some reasonable kickbacks in terms of uh kit and equipment but uh, and maybe travel to the the occasional event but probably not talking about a professional salary but at the same time if they're getting thousands and thousands of followers on social media and a lot of attention and yeah. this is a, uh, a major aspect of their identity mm-hmm. then it's that connection that can lead to the uh, the behavior and become the driver rather than the financial gain yeah yeah um, yeah so, I- I see a similarity with um, like I'm fascinated by course cutters, like which is uh, it's become a big thing. There's that marathon investigation. Um, it, to me, I, like again, it just seems like such sociopathic behavior. But I, I think um, to both your points, like social media has made it so much worse. Not only are we hearing about it, but like these people, all of a sudden, it becomes part of their identity that I'm this great runner and that I've won these races. So now they're they're cutting, you know, every course and posting pictures of, you know, a new PR and qualifying for Boston and and almost cr- creating this fictional narrative online that then they have to live up to. Um, it's uh, it's wild. I, I mean, to me, course cutting is is mind boggling. Like if you uh, I mean, to me, if I want to run a marathon, it's because I want to, you know, see if I can run 26.2 miles. And, and the idea of cutting a course so that I can get some more likes or more followers is, is it, I, it's, it's so absurd, but it's happening so much. And I'm sure we're only catching a small, small percentage of what's actually going on there. I'm just curious, once you start doing that as well, like you say, you create this um, persona, this, this, 
imaginary person that actually doesn't exist who can't run that fast. Mm-hmm. So eventually you kind of box yourself into a corner because you can't turn up to a running race because you know yeah. you can't run that fast. Right. You got you got to pick your races really carefully. You study the maps and <laughs> yeah, I uh it, it every time I I I love that marathon investigation site and it, unfortunately there's um you know it led to a um I can't think of the name, but the, the guy who ultimately uh, jumped off a bridge and killed himself because he, uh, he was ousted on on that site. Um, so you just see a whole it, it, that goes to show how awful social media can be, too, because people were just absolutely ripping him to shreds and, and saying horrible things and um, showing, you know, news reporters were showing up at his house. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's yeah, as much as I love social media and I uh, I I try to take a very humorous approach to, to Twitter and, and not take it too seriously. Um, Cause at the end of the day, it's, it's, this is, you know, endurance sports, Twitter, how seriously can you take it? Um, it, it is pretty scary how, uh, how serious some of those situations can become. Yeah. Yeah. Just interesting. I do want to go off on a different topic here. Cause something else that just sprung to mind. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on uh, e-racing. You know, this uh, with the same in cycling is going to be the next big thing. We'd eventually see, you know, people racing on Zwift at the Olympic Games and things like that. Um, and I, I was, uh, I, again, I'm a bit old school, really. And with my cycling and running, I've always thought you cycle outdoors. And, you know, I've, I've never really been a part of Zwift. And I have to say, I've been doing it for us, getting into Zwift over the last six months and really loving it. Although I do notice there's a lot of guys I'm racing against who are all 55 kilograms. <laughs> a lot of small guys on Zwift. And even on there, they're cheating, you know. It's yeah. a daily thing. Just put, Well, that's all right. Just typing in the wrong weight. I'm not taking EPO. You know, I'm just going to put my wrong weight into the laptop. And um, just curious what your thoughts are on, on that as well and that whole thing. Yeah, it's like lying on your driver's license about your weight too. You know, I'm sure I shaved off uh, a couple of kilos last time I went in for that. Um, and I'm yeah, I, I mean, Ian, you can probably speak to the the psychological drive there. Is like, I'm sure if I were, I don't Swift at all. I, I'm I'm very old school in my training. I I love being outdoors. Um, you know, I have a fat bike for the winter. I don't care if there's a foot of snow. I'm riding outside. Um, I've never tried Zwift. Um, I say I never will. I, eventually I might, and who knows, maybe I'll become addicted like so many other people are, but, uh, I'm sure if I was signing up, I might, you know, take a, a kilo or two off, uh, just because that's the way I, I should be and I want to be, and that's why I'm training to be, but, um, yeah, to do like the, the weight doping, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting psychological of like, why lie in that context? Um, perhaps it's the same as, as people, you know, who, who, you know, do actual doping with substances. I, Ian, you could probably speak better to that. I just, I don't see the drive, the drive between uh, behind, you know, shaving 15 kilos off of, uh, off of your weight to do better in a electronic race. Yeah. <laughs> I think often a lot of these things are quite incremental, aren't they? So it'll be, you know, what, what's my lightest weight that I've been on a single day in my career that becomes <laughs> the way. And it's like, Oh, but I could potentially look. So in their own mind, they're probably rationalising that that is a di- where they could feasibly be, and that they're generating the power. So I think uh, often it's, it's probably you probably find that there's a gradual move uh, towards those rather than just. Uh, I probably sells it better online as well if you don't suddenly just lose 10, 15 kilos in, in a day. But I think psychologically, um, it's easy for you to rationalise if you do if you adjust these things. Uh, on an incremental basis but I think across all of these uh, behaviors where it's a 
a clear cheating behavior that the, the, the similar psychological processes explaining it is um you know the, the ability to rationalize it uh, um of the behavior probably that perception that it's something that's widespread so i would imagine that people are thinking similar when like you say there's a lot of people that are 55 kilos so yeah, yeah it, it starts off being what are my lightest on my lightest day but then it's like well other people are probably taking a kilo or two off that so then it's a kilo or two off what you're lightest on your lightest day and then uh, all of a sudden you, you know you're 10 15 kilos lighter than you were originally and that i think it's probably the the, the same in terms of what the, the overall drivers are is the, the, the response of other people I think is probably the big one um, that um, we're seeing uh, in the last five ten years it's it's almost like how you're perceived by others becomes more important than how you perceive yourself yeah um, and I think uh, it's the same with the, uh, the course cutting is probably an even better example isn't it and I, I think again you get like I mentioned there in terms of this perception that a lot of people are doing it I think you get the, there's a really good example of that in I think it was was it the Mexico City Marathon where something like 30 or 40 percent of people were um, cutting corners or so it was some ridiculous I saw a news article on it a ridiculous number of people that were cutting the course and it was almost seen as though it was just the norm it just become became acceptable and people were using it as a way of getting a Boston time or something uh, yeah. along those lines um, so yeah I think we there are definitely similarities or uh, across these different behaviors where someone who's prepared to engage in one is probably uh, yeah likely to do uh, the others as well I should just chip in here as well because you'd be interested to know this in yourself uh, Brad, I organise a, a trail race in the UK called the Lakeland 100, and it's 100 miles around the Lake District, and it's probably the most popular ultra trail race in the UK at the moment. But we, um, they, it's, uh, um, we last year introduced GPS tracking, so you could dot watch people. So we had a, a timing system where they, they went through checkpoints every so many miles, and they would record when they went through checkpoints. But we now introduced GPS tracking, and we introduced that because we had reports of people being spotted arriving at checkpoints in cars and that mystery car seen waiting at the previous checkpoint. And we had this is people in the top 10 of the race were uh, in the middle of the night because they would run through the night. There would be a mystery car at a checkpoint and then it'd be spotted arriving at another checkpoint and someone getting out and recording that they'd been there. So with a GPS tracker, you suddenly see this runner doing 50 miles an hour down a main road <laughs> <laughs> and you realise... That's not quite right. There's something wrong there. <laughs> but I was going to this e-racing on the biking, um, because uh, there's a big push for this with, with cycling. I know that Swift are trying to get UCI to, you know, create a so it's world championships and recognise world championships and get it. Well, I hope eventually kind of get it in the Olympics, aren't they? Um, I don't know if you saw in the, in the, in the press, Ian, you I know you would have seen it, but I don't know if you saw it yourself, Brad, it's a UK thing, but the, there was a national championships and it was organised by British Cycling. And the uh, and the winner of the uh, of the uh, e-bike championships was disqualified, and and I, I think I'm getting this story right. But what had happened is on Zwift, apparently, I think if you climb so many meters of climbing, you get a special bike which is lighter than the other bikes. Mm -hmm. But it would take you a month to do this climbing. So this guy somehow had a um, a bot or something where his Zwift account was running constantly as if it was on the bike all day <laughs> to to rack up this ridiculous amount of climbing which he never actually did himself but what it did is give his account this special bike 
which he then used on race day, if we're calling it race day, for the national championships and uh, and won. And, and then it was found out that he cheated to get this bike, <laughs> which is the most, you know, that's where we are now with, with e-doping. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember just seeing the headline e-doping and I just, I I didn't think I'd ever see that. Um, and I, I think that, that that whole insane story goes to show why I'll, I'll probably never ride Zwift because that's, <laughs> it's, it's just the absurdity of all that. Uh, I, I, but I'm kind of fascinated to know how he actually, you know, kept the bike running, you know, what kind of mechanism was working there. And The bike was moving. I think it was just more something, you know, some software on his yeah. Swift account made it seem like he was riding the bike. So Swift, yeah. he was riding the bike, but the bike was, you know, so... But yeah, but it's absolutely crazy, really, when you consider it. And then, the, yeah, people looked into it and realized what he'd done. And he was post-race, you know, further down the line, DQ'd and stripped of his national title. Dude, that that so, kind of thing should definitely be a lifetime ban. That's just it's too absurd. <laughs> if, you're, if you're going to, I mean, I, I think, I, you know, I, I'm for and against lifetime bans. I think it's, it's a tricky subject and it's it's really easy to say. Any, any positive test, any cheating, lifetime ban, um, I, I think that that opens up a whole different can of worms. Um, but yeah, that, that just the kind of absurd situations like that. If you're, uh, if you're cheating an e-race, you know, like that, you're, you're done. You, you don't get to, to ride your Zwift anymore. Yeah. Um, probably be pretty easy for them to enforce that though. You know, with Zwift being electronic, they just, you know, ban it from the platform. And, yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, virtual motorized doping, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> ask about motorized doping as well. I don't, I, I'm just, again, a question for both of you, cause I don't, I don't know about this, but where do we stand now with motorized open? Because I remember that was a very big thing when people were making suggestions that Cancellara did it, uh, you know, in the classics. And you get all sorts of YouTube videos of him moving his thumb to a certain point on the handlebars where there is no gear shifter and suddenly accelerating away. Where do we stand on motorized open? Because obviously e-bikes become more and more popular. At um, an average Ironman event, if you turn up at an Ironman event, do they, do they actually do bike checks? Or is that some, because that seems to have died away a little bit e-doping. I've uh, I've only seen the the scans with the iPads yeah. in Kona, um, and uh, this year I was at the bike. I was uh, I organized the annual bike count, um, so I was there at check-in the entire day, and I saw maybe twenty to twenty-five percent of the pros' bikes being scanned. Um, none of no age group bikes. Um, that's not to say that once they had their bikes corralled, you know they they could have they have them held hostage. Um, so I, they certainly could have. Um, I've never seen a, a motor check in any other Ironman or, or triathlon event. Uh, I haven't been at an IT race in a number of years, so I, I would imagine that they have some protocol for that, um, especially, you know, major games, that kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, Ian, I'd be fascinated to know your take on, um, on motor doping from a psychological perspective. Like, is it do you think it's something that's easier to justify because you're not actually putting something into your body um, and potentially, you know, there's not the, the potential uh, health issues uh, with that, that, you know, some, some athletes might have, um, you know, I, I'm afraid of needles. I, I, I wouldn't dope because I, I, I hate needles. Um, whereas the, the motor sort of takes that away, but on a, on a different, I think some people would view it as, as cheating on a higher level um, because it, it, it's something totally unnatural. Um, yeah, I mean, is that something you think is easier to justify or not? Because it's it's a greater level of cheating. Yeah, I think uh, so. A, a number of, just to pick up on one or two of the things that you said there, I think um, it's probably very individual. 
So for some people, that the, the deterrent and the thing that they really need to rationalise is sort of the health consequences and that's that kind of thing. So if that's you, if that's a big issue for you, then it's probably easier to rationalise the, the motorised doping. But um, for a lot of people, um, they're able to convince themselves that if they're doping, that their performance is still them and it's allowing them to sort of bring out their natural abilities or to even perform at their highest level, but more frequently. So they still see it as being them and it's them producing the performance. I think that side of thing, that's much more difficult to view if, you've, uh, if you're using motorized doping. So I think um, the, the nature of the rationalization would have to change. And uh, I think it would be more difficult overall um, across people, but it probably varies quite a lot from one individual to the next. I think if you're rationalizing it based on the profit, the money earning potential, the benefit for your team or the benefit for your family because you're earning more money and you're supporting your family, then the motorized doping is probably easier to rationalize because um, you're not doing anything that's potentially harmful to you. Um, and that could influence your, your ability to support the family you know, uh, later in life. Um, so I think what you'd find is that the, the nature of the rationalization and how they justify it would, it would differ. Um, so rather than it necessarily being easier or harder, but a, a lot of people do still see uh, who do their performances as being coming from them, which is very difficult to view from uh, when you uh, when you've got lots of that sort of driving 10, 20, whatever wattage it might be additional on top on top. Um, uh, so I think yeah, the nature of the rationalization would have to change to to sort of support that. Um, it's pretty, I guess it's such a niche thing and sort of under the radar. I don't know of, I've not heard of even anecdotally of people rationalizing it. So it, I'm kind of uh, just guessing there, but that's what I would propose is that you would have to rationalize it in a different way based on what you would gain from that and what the social benefit might be potentially for family, team, um, because it's also hard to rationalise it in terms of this is something that a lot of people are doing because it probably isn't because of the access and the ability to um, for that to be happening on a team level um, or more widespread. Um, so yeah, I would think it, it, it would change the nature. Yeah, I, I just feel like you'd have to you'd have to have huge balls to try it if you're a professional in a race like Kona. I just think that because people ask me all the time, like you know, do you think motor doping is a huge problem and I, I, I'm not going to say it doesn't exist because, you know, that that'd be ridiculous um, to think that no one's trying it. But to the risk of getting caught there, um, you, you know, I don't know how the punishments would differ in terms of bans, but it's it's it, in a, from a public perspective, like you would just be you'd be blacklisted for life if, you know, you know, God forbid, you know, one of the top triathletes in Kona, they got popped with a motor like that person would be persona non grata in sport forever. I mean, they would be hated more than any doper, in my opinion, just because it's it's viewed as such a such an unnatural way to cheat that yeah. probably not a lot of people are, you know, are doing. So there's like you said, it removes that that rationale. And yeah, no, there's no cover story, is there? You can't say that. Yeah. That Belgian woman, the cyclocross racer a couple of years ago, she, she's the only person I know of who got caught with a motor. And she, uh, she honestly tried that rationale like that. You know, someone put this in my bike, you know, whether it was someone from the team or someone who wanted her to win. 
like she did not know that there was a little motor giving her 10 or 20 extra watts um I, I mean, I feel like if you get caught with the motor in your bike, you better just throw your hands up and say, hey, I, you know, I tried, you know, I, I got yeah. busted. Um, I always, it was always that video on YouTube, wasn't it? I think it was, I've seen someone doing a time trial, a French or a Spanish cyclist in it. I'm sure it was in the Tour de France. And he came off the bike and the bike's lying on its side. And the pedals are still going round and the back wheel's turning. Yeah. There's uh, one of David Miller's teammates, I think, because he's mentioned in his book, The Racer. Um, yeah. And he just sort of dismisses it and as being ridiculous, and people just seeing what they want to see to to, to support their beliefs. But um, yeah. yeah, that was one of the arguments: is that the wheel just didn't stop, and that because the uh, the motor was still driving it. Yeah, and the pedals didn't. I think the the pedals still going round as well, weren't it? The pedals yeah, were still. Yeah, spinning. it was like it was moving itself <laughs> on the ground. Which, um, and that's I mean, there were a couple of videos like that that came out, and all of a sudden, I, I think because the natural thinking is, no, that's ridiculous. Who would do that? Who would risk getting caught? But then you see videos like that that are that are so odd, and you're like, huh, that's uh, yeah. All of a sudden, becomes very possible. Yeah, I almost found e-bike e-bikes offensive. You know, when I went on a I went on holiday, uh, it, it's a sign you can't ride a bike anymore, isn't it? Really, when you these the popularity of e-bikes now as well. I went on holiday back in May to Austria for a week, and I walked into the bike shop to hire a bike. And the guy just looked me up and down, and immediately just said, "E-bike, yes." And I thought I was so offended by it. Looked <laughs> 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 me up and down, and like, clearly you're here for an e-bike. It's like, no, my friend, give me a normal bike. How dare you insult me? <laughs> but, but if but, you've got a small motor that you can put in, then yeah. you can see. <laughs> I've got um, one last thing I actually wanted to uh, to bring up in, and I feel like I'm at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting um, when I say that I've bought some vapor flies. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a pair of night vapor flies. I couldn't resist it, and I feel like we have to finish on that conversation about the magic shoes and where, where our thoughts are on that. <laughs> well, I guess it bring, brings us to night more generally, doesn't it? I guess, and uh, 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 as an organisation, but. Um... I'm yeah, doing, Andy. I'm doing it as an investigation, as a study, you understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah obviously, yeah. <laughs> yes, let, me know, let me know how the study goes and what, <laughs> and what your PBs are. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, well, I'll be, uh, we've discussed this previously, so I'll be interested to get Brad's take on this and, uh, and what he thinks around the, uh, uh, the, the shoe technology and development in that area. Um, yeah, that's... Uh... I, I mean, it goes to show that that if everyone's doing it, all of a sudden everyone will jump on board. Um, and uh, I mean, especially if you're at a highly competitive level, it's almost like you don't have a choice to. You've seen the the times that other athletes are producing. Um, I know uh, Andrew Starkowitz, uh, the pro triathlete, is a good friend of mine, um, and he uh, he's a very uh, stuck in his ways. He's very old school. Um, he's uh, um, it's someone I think has a lot of integrity and he's, uh, he's always been, a, he was against those shoes at like using them at all. He's like, no way. He's like, those are springs that is not running. That's cheating. I will never wear them. I will win races without them. Um, and you know, he had been saying that all year and then all of a sudden he showed up, I, I tuned into the coverage of Ironman Florida a couple of weeks ago and there's Andrew leading off the bike in his bright green Nike Vaporflies. And I, I was excited because I, I, I told him after every race, I'm like, you're insane. Like, look at these guys are dropping five or six minutes. You, this is your job. You've got three kids. Like you're, 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 you, you have to get these shoes. Um, and so I was very relieved to see that he finally did. Um, 
And uh, Joe Skipper also in Kona wasn't running in, in carbon sold shoes. He, he's a Hoka athlete, not a Nike. Um, but then I also you know noticed in, in Florida that he showed up with those shoes and had one of the best races of his career, probably the best race of his career. Um, so I, I, I don't see it going away. I don't see the shoes all of a sudden being banned. And because of that, you know, this is the new norm of, of, uh, a fast running shoe. Um, and, uh, I, I just wonder if it was some other company, some, you know, ultras on running that came up with this, you know, carbon sole technology, if it, if it would have been accepted the way it is. And since it was Nike and it's been, you know, publicized with things like the, the Ineos, you know, breaking two challenge, um, that it's been so accepted and and embraced the way that it's been yeah it's interesting on social media i see a lot of uk runners it's like a dirty secret because they kind of feel like they can't support nike at the moment so they're really silently ordering vapor flies online you know <laughs> just make sure they're packaged up when they get here so no one knows what they are but yeah. everybody's them, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I bought the uh, the Hoka Carbon X's after Kona. I, I ran in, in Kona, I ran in both in the Vaporflies. Uh, and I remember talking to Ben Hoffman about the Vaporflies, and he, of course, had a phenomenal run. And, you know, he was talking about uh, all the things he loves about them, but he's like, they're, they're absolutely not for everyone. They're, you know, people who are on their toes. And there's also a really narrow heel, as I'm sure you've noticed, that I, I just couldn't run in those shoes. I felt like I was just going to roll an ankle every time I, was, I took a stride. Um, tried the Hoka's and and loved them. They fit great. I, but you know, I felt a real like it, you feel like a little spring, like a little pop in your step, um, which is nice. And it's that that sensation too is is um, you know as soon as you try them, it's it's almost like you can't go back to to your regular running shoes. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we're gonna see a shoes coming out. Yeah, it's interesting what Mark said about it being sort of a, a dead secret or something that people feel as though they can't mention, but. You're also seeing reports on when athletes performed. You get it's like there's a subtext to it what they were wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, in Frankfurt recently, I think it's Steph Twelve ran a uh, in two. Did she run two twenty six something like that? And I saw when the uh, announcement came out on Twitter, they said, and for what it's worth, she was wearing New Balance. Mm-hmm. As if that was like, oh, it's an even better performance. Yeah, she would have been four minutes faster. Yeah. Yeah. But but she was but she was wearing a prototype New Balance which has right. a carbon plate. That, that not all of that is lost on on Twitter. And but you know that, that there's that little mention saying that this is an even better performance because she wasn't wearing Vaporflies. But you know we don't know what the the competitor shoes that are now being worn by professional athletes what advantage they're giving. So it is muddy in the waters somewhat. But I think you know it's maybe a bit too simplistic to say it's either. If they're not wearing Nike, they're not getting an advantage because I think um, a number of other companies have now got their prototypes out. Um, we don't have access to them, but professional athletes do. Yeah, I remember after Jan won in Kona, a bunch of people said, hey, he wasn't wearing the Nikes, he was wearing Asics, and uh, they were very clearly a prototype shoe um, that uh, I'm assuming you know has a, a carbon plate in there. Um, and like you said, we're, everyone's going to be doing it and uh, – what becomes interesting now is where is that line drawn of can huh. go in, into the sole of a shoe? Um, you know, the from the the shoe engineers I've talked to, that Vaporfly is a very, very, it's a very complicated design. It's you know very obviously very well done. Um, and, but what's you know what's next after that? What's the next next percent? Um, and where uh, you know where does the IAAF or whoever come down and say no? This is this is not running anymore. This is 
propulsion, essentially. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think some of the best suggestions I've heard have been in terms of uh, limiting the stack height. Because I think the, the possibility of scanning shoes or cutting shoes open to find out what's in there just doesn't seem as though that's a viable option. It'd be good uh, theater though if, if as soon as the uh, you know the marathon's done in the Olympics, they grab the shoes, they saw them in half, and they check. Them. Yeah. <laughs> you don't go for anti-doping control. You go down to the guy with the saw. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm certainly going to try them. I'm going to try them over the next few months and see. But like you say, yeah. it's. Uh, that point now where everybody's moving, where and then everybody's just got to move on, haven't they? I guess. Yeah, I feel I like think so. psychologically, I mean, there's a psychology element there, surely, that you feel like you're at a disadvantage if you've not got them on. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I, a lot of people are suggesting that the technology should be banned and so on. And I, I always think that's humorous in some ways because for years and years, shoe companies have been making these claims, and everyone's been so negative about them, saying, "Well, you claim that you reduce injuries and that you can improve performance. There's no evidence for that." And then the minute a company actually does it, it's like, "We're going to ban that." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're going to limit the amount of money that goes into research and development uh, within shoe companies because they won't channel that money in if they're not going to be allowed to use the technologies that come out of it. But at the same time, I think we do need to have probably a a limit on on where this goes but um yeah probably limiting the stack height might be um one way of doing that um can i ask you you know the research that went into the shoes and where the original four percent came from the you know they did researches into oxygen economy and they did you know uh, blood measurements for tissue damage and you know from the impact and all of those kind of things has there independent research been done or was the research done by nike so the original 4% came from Nike, but there's been independent research since. So independent research has been done since, which has backed it all up. It's corroborated that, yeah. Ah, right, yeah, just yeah. curious. Because obviously I, I just thought it's slightly biased of Nike to do to produce their own stats. And everybody yeah. go, wow, 4% you know, improvement in performance that you can't right. read. <laughs> As we've seen, uh, Nike's got some pretty nice labs and, uh, and scientists working there in Oregon. So uh, yeah, yeah they, uh, they definitely knew what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. Say, if I was trying to sell a shoe, I'd, pro I'd produce some research as well to say it was 4% improvement in performance. But, you know, <laughs> there's a slight conflict of interest at their own. Their oh, own completely, yeah. So producing the research figures. Yeah, it's the same as the white paper on any triathlon bike. You know, you can, you can go to a specific tunnel and test in a specific way and, and you know, keep changing things until you get the result you want. Um, but it's yeah. only when you see those independent tests that you realize, huh, that bike is maybe not very fast and, and yeah. you know, that's, it's yeah, very easy to, to skew that kind of research, especially with bikes, um, which yeah. I, I'm much more familiar with that kind of, um, yeah. you know, wind yeah. tunnel testing than, uh, than shoe testing. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the one thing that's probably worth saying is that the 4% is an average and some of that independent research did suggest that it can vary quite a lot from one individual to the next in terms of the advantages that they get. So some people can get a greater advantage than that, but, same time, other people are, are getting less of an advantage. And one of the suggestions, it might be whether you're more of a heel striker than a forefoot striker mm -hmm. would determine how much benefit you got, with the suggestion that heel strikers potentially got a greater benefit Interesting. Um, than forefoot four strikers. Um, so I guess some people would suggest that that's an argument that um, you, you should ban the technology because you're getting unequal gains from it. But you know, there's so many different things. You know, it's the same thing in terms of nutrition. Some people are able to take on board more nutrition than someone else. So some people can take on board, you know, 60, 70 grams of carbs in an hour 
quite easily someone else might be at 30 grams but you don't ban nutritional supplements during sport because of that um, or a, a wetsuit where you know a good swimmer might only be saving yeah. a minute by putting a wetsuit on a bad swimmer it could be 10 minutes um, yeah 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 so i think sometimes we just have to accept that that's the way things are and uh, it always goes back to focusing on your own performance i think doesn't it yeah um uh yeah your performance might be improved when you put those shoes on but then that is your new mark in the sand isn't it for you to work against yeah 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 great uh ian did you have any more questions or that you're going to bring up uh, not really. Well, yeah, just one last question. I thought um, it'd be quite nice to end with. We, we mentioned Nike there, and we haven't really discussed Salazar and uh, Mary Kane, but I think that's got quite a lot of coverage recently. But I did see something that you'd, uh, that you'd put out, Brad, in terms of your comment on that. And uh, uh -oh. Salazar, yeah, I won't repeat the tweet because I don't know, <laughs> but um, just that you said that uh, you concluded that with saying a four-year ban for Salazar doesn't fix the broken system. So I wonder if you could just, it'd be nice to finish off on uh, elaborating what you mean by that, but also how you think we might go about fixing that and finish more on a positive note. Uh, so the bro what the broken system is and what we might need to do to improve it. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, a lot of the coverage in the U.S. especially has been about um, these, uh, these broader issues, with, especially with women's sports. Um, it, it's been pretty specific to women and girls, but it's also, I think, a problem with, um, you know, for boys and young men too, is this, um, there, there are a lot of really bad coaches out there and, um, in a lot of really powerful positions in federations and places, you know, uh, situations like the Oregon project that, um, that, you know, I, I, I have a lot of friends who are coaches. I, I was lucky to have some great coaches and some really bad coaches growing up. And you see, um, you know, your job as a coach should be the, the health and well-being of your athlete, you know, both both physically and, and emotionally. And um, I think that, that the system that's broken is these people who practice very, very immoral behavior, whether it's systemically doping athletes, as was the case in Salazar, whether it's, um, you know, verbally abusing athletes, as, you know, it looks like was the case in Salazar and so many other people. Um, whether it's actual physical abuse, there's just these people who, um, you know, by the time they've gotten into these very high up positions, you know, others know what has been going on. It is there's been hundreds or thousands of victims. And for whatever reason, you know, because they're winning, because they're doing well, because sponsors are coming in, you know, they've just been elevated to this point where they're almost untouchable. Um, and uh, I, I think that what's going on right now, you know, especially with Mary Kane speaking up the way she did, is um, is you know kind of empowering athletes, especially young girls, to speak up about a situation that might not be right. Um, and I think that that's um, the more that that you know young athletes feel empowered to speak up and speak out against these uh, you know these corrupt coaches. I think that's where the system becomes fixed. Um, just saying that Alberto Salazar can't coach these athletes for four years. First of all, I don't know what mechanism they're using to enforce that. Like they're not going to have his cell phone. He can, he can text Galen Rupp and work out whenever he wants. Um, he could probably even meet him. Like I'm sure that's part of the ban is that you can't see him. But again, how is that being enforced? What does that actually accomplish? You know, we haven't, it doesn't do anything, not just for anti-doping, but for the larger problem with um, corrupt coaches, just to say, this guy's been for four years. Look, you know, we busted him. Um, this is a win. Um, it's 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 a step in the right direction, but it, it's it's not a win yet. Um, 
But uh, I think that, that, you know, Mary speaking up and so many others now is certainly pushing the conversation forward and hopefully it continues to go that direction. Yeah. No, I think some great points there. I think um, uh, greater control of you know, people going into coaching, I think, is important as well. I mean, going back, I think you sometimes see that people have negative traits as athletes and that can lead them to do engaging behaviours that are maybe not healthy for them and also sometimes rule-breaking behaviours as well. And I think that's obviously that's something we need to try and uh, support and prevent uh, on an individual basis for an athlete. But I think there's also the possibility that athletes such as that and that engaging quite extreme behaviours as athletes, if they then go on to be coaches, sort of the, the potential damage that they can do then if they've mm -hmm. got a full group of athletes and then they're given the potential power that you were alluding to there, then you know, the, the, the damage they can do at that point is, is much greater and it's not just for them, it's for, uh, for many more athletes. Um, so I think you know, in terms of the system, you know, certainly taking control of, who is capable of going into coaching and who's allowed to coach um, and trying to get a great handle on that might be uh, a positive step. Yeah. And uh, protecting the whistleblowers. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kara Goucher was the, and Steve Magnus were the first two to speak up and essentially had their professional careers ruined. I mean, they were, you know, sued by, you know, Nike back lawyers. Like there's, they, they were attacked and, and, you know, and that's why it took so long to get to this point where, you know, if Mary spoke up five or six years ago, she probably would have had a lawsuit and probably would have, you know, endured even more emotional pain. Um, I think that that protecting those people who want to speak up is the key um, to, you know, really, really changing that system. Yeah, I'm, uh, I guess that's one of the real positives recently is that a sort of Gary Goucher and Steve Magnus have sort of been validated in what they were saying many years ago, but it's taken too long for that to happen. But at least now, there's, there's more widespread acknowledgement that you know what they were saying was true, and and people are starting to acknowledge the risks that they took by by doing that in that situation, when many people wouldn't have done. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose that's what happens when you don't start when someone has that much power, and they're allowed to run with it for so long. They just I suppose feel they become a little bit untouchable as well. It's, it's whether you're an athletics coach or a Hollywood director. The stories are the same, aren't they? You know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Salazar thought nothing could happen. I mean, he had the backing of of Mark yeah. Parker at Nike, and and I'm sure Mark, you know, probably feels like the most untouchable guy in sports, and I'm assuming is the highest paid executive in in all of sports worldwide. Um, and you see, even he wasn't. Not that he's actually been pushed out. That's a whole different issue. He's still gonna, you know, make probably twenty million dollars a year and, you know, serve on their board. But um, it, it's good to see that that essentially no one's untouchable. Um, and that, uh, yeah, like you said, Ian, these whistleblowers have been vindicated. Um, I, uh, I can't imagine how good that felt for, for Steve and Kara, how, how bittersweet it was to, you know, endure so much pain for so long and know that you're telling the truth, um, to finally have that truth come to light. It's been, it's been a pretty good day for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So yeah, that's it. Well, that's it from me, Mark, in terms of questions. Yes, I'm, I'm going to have to save uh, Prince Andrew for next week, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shame. I'm going to miss that one. Yeah. <laughs> Brad, thanks very much for coming yeah. on the show. Absolutely fantastic chatting to you. Um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate we'll, that. We'll, yeah, we'll hopefully get you back in the future. All right. Yeah, that'll be great. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks, right, cheers. Guys. Thanks, guys.
Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>